0: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video, and of course, Prime's fast free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit amazon.com/prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
2: New season out on Spotify soon.
0: Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of animal experiments, suicidal ideation, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In
1: 2018, the crew of High seas 6 bunkered down for a multi-month stay in their Mars habitation unit. It sat in an endless stretch of red rock and rough terrain.
0: The mission promised to be boring. That is, until one crew member's health took a turn for the worse. To protect his privacy, NASA never released his name. We'll call him Gene.
1: Gene needed to see a doctor, but he couldn't just drive to the nearest clinic. Hundreds of millions of miles lay between Earth's hospitals and Mars. And so, he made a difficult choice.
0: Gene stepped into the depressurization chamber without the required spacesuit. He waited five minutes, the time it took for the air to slowly hiss out of the room. Then he left his colleagues behind forever.
1: But Gene hadn't stepped into an airless alien atmosphere. In fact, he wasn't on Mars at all. He and his crew were on the remote Mauna Loa Volcano in Hawaii. They were participants in High seas 6 a NASA simulation of life on Mars. As such, Gene's crew had to pretend he had died, even though he had merely left the simulation to seek medical treatment.
0: It was easy for Gene to get health care in Hawaii, but someday a real astronaut could very well need treatment on another planet. And as the crew of the High seas 6 experiment learned, even minor maladies in space can easily turn deadly.
1: This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events.
0: We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard.
1: And I'm Kate. This is our ninth episode on the dark side of space. While the quest to put a man on the moon and explore the great beyond has always been a trophy on the shelves of US history, we're digging just a little deeper into what really happened to get there.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
1: You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar.
0: Last week, we discussed New Space and how private corporations and billionaires have changed the world of space exploration.
1: This week, we're examining a goal many of those billionaires share— Mars colonization. Private space agencies like SpaceX and even NASA are promising to send people to the Red Planet within the decade.
0: But many dangers lurk in deep space, the region beyond Earth's orbit. And until we remedy the fundamental risks, a journey to Mars could easily be deadly.
1: In the 1950s and 60s, two of Earth's superpowers, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, engaged in a race to the Moon. Half a century later, in the 2000s, a new space race launched, this time, The goal
0: is to reach deep space. For those unfamiliar with the term, deep space is synonymous with outer space. It's everything that lies beyond the Earth's atmosphere, particularly beyond the Moon's orbit. And humanity has barely scratched its surface.
1: But space exploration agencies are trying to change that. In 2010, NASA launched a new initiative to try to put people on Mars by the 2030s. Private colonist program Mars One claimed they'd have inhabitants there by 2032. And Elon Musk's corporation, SpaceX, bested them all by saying they'd put astronauts on the Red Planet as early as 2024.
0: Unlike the first space race, this second space race isn't an ideological or nationalist competition. The contestants claim that colonizing Mars is key to human survival that it's dangerous to keep our species confined to a single planet. Climate change
1: already threatens all life on Earth. And then there are external threats. If an asteroid, like the one many experts believe killed the dinosaurs, were to strike, humanity would be out of luck. And so colonizing Mars is an investment in our future.
0: At least that's what the private space agencies say. They're not exactly unbiased observers. Their bottom line depends on investment in space exploration. For example, in 2011, private corporation Mars One Ventures partnered with the nonprofit Mars One Foundation to launch Mars One, a program that originally claimed they'd send astronauts to Mars in 2023. Obviously, that date proved too ambitious, and they later pushed it back to 2032 at the earliest.
1: But Mars One wasn't looking for scientific personnel. Instead, they targeted civilians, and allegedly more than 200,000 people applied to the program. According to journalist Elmo Keep, candidates were then encouraged to compete with one another for points, which could be redeemed for Mars One swag and the only way to accrue points was to either donate to Mars One or purchase merchandise.
0: So far, that sounds like a standard shopper reward program. You buy something, get a tiny reward back, and use the reward to buy more. It was a weird way to reward applicants, but overall it seemed harmless. Until it was discovered that those with the most points were the same candidates accelerating through the Mars One hiring grounds. As such, TechCrunch's Taylor Hatmaker described Mars One as a multi-level marketing scheme, not a scientific expedition.
1: Public excitement around a Martian colony helped them get away with the scam for seven years. On January 15th, 2019, Mars One declared bankruptcy after numerous exposés. Besides their questionable fundraising tactics, journalists learned that the program hadn't developed any practical technology to get them closer to the red planet.
0: Which is relatively unsurprising, since reaching another planet is easier said than done. There's a reason we haven't made it past the moon in over 50 years since the Apollo era.
1: Compared to Mars, the Moon is fairly easy to reach. It's always roughly the same distance from Earth's surface. By contrast, Mars orbits around the Sun at a slower speed than our planet. One Martian year lasts a whopping 687 Earth days.
0: That means Earth and Mars pass each other once every 26 months. Our orbital speed is roughly 13,000 miles per hour faster than Mars, and we have a shorter orbit since we're closer to the Sun. So any interplanetary trip has to account for shifting positions, differing speeds, and distinct orbital arcs. Think of a familiar
1: action movie. There's probably a sequence where a character leaps from one moving car or plane onto a different moving vehicle. The acrobatics are exciting because we understand how difficult it must be to gauge when and where to jump. It would be all too easy for Tom Cruise or Dwayne Johnson to miscalculate his trajectory and
0: become roadkill. That's essentially what spaceships do every time they launch toward Mars. Planets are big, but space is bigger, and we have to perfectly calculate each rocket's speed and trajectory to make sure it doesn't overshoot and miss its destination entirely.
1: The mechanics are so complicated that Jill Soybert, a deep space navigator for NASA, said, to put my job in context, it's like me standing here in LA today and shooting an arrow and hitting a target the size of a quarter. And that quarter is sitting in Times Square in New York.
0: Assuming everything goes completely according to plan, a standard spaceship would take nine months to travel from Earth to Mars, unless we developed a more efficient propulsion system.
1: Solar technologies are a promising solution. A rocket's solar panels could work like the sails on a boat. Rather than capturing wind gusts, they'd gather and store solar energy, propelling the vessel to Mars with less fuel than a traditional rocket.
0: The major drawback is that the closer the ship gets to Mars, the further it gets from the sun, so it wouldn't have enough power to easily accelerate. Such a spaceflight to Mars would take an estimated two to two and a half years, roughly three times longer than a standard rocket fuel engine.
1: Alternatively, some engineers proposed that nuclear energy could power
0: a Martian craft. Of course, nuclear engines would be very risky, Today, people are still dealing with the literal fallout from the Chernobyl and Three Mile Island disasters. The passengers or crew of a Martian spaceship would have nowhere to go to escape from a uranium leak.
1: Despite this, NASA engineers have repeatedly emphasized that the nuclear radiation from an engine is far less powerful and deadly than naturally occurring cosmic
0: radiation, as cold a comfort as that is. Ideally, Martian colonists would travel with a clean-burning, non-radioactive, but still powerful fuel. And some scientists think the solution may lie in antimatter.
1: Antimatter is, in simple terms, the opposite of matter. And opposites have explosive results when they come
0: together. Imagine you dumped a bucket of water onto a campfire. They would destroy each other. The fire would go out and the water would evaporate. In the process, they'd release smoke and steam.
1: Likewise, when matter and antimatter come in contact, they're both obliterated with a massive energy output. That energy could possibly be harnessed to power interplanetary journeys.
0: Star Trek fans may picture serene blue pillars of gently swirling fluid when they think of antimatter spaceship engines. But the reality is a lot more explosive than that. In fact, it only takes one gram of antimatter, equivalent to a single raisin, to generate as much power as a nuclear bomb.
1: At least in theory. To date, scientists have only been able to produce 15 nanograms of antimatter in laboratory settings. In other words, to get that raisin of antimatter, we'd need to step up the volume by 5 million-fold.
0: That's no small endeavor. In fact, the equipment and energy to generate that amount of antimatter would cost $62.5 trillion, about three-fourths of the world's GDP in 2019. It's hard to imagine any space agency would spend that kind of money just to shave a few months off of a Martian journey.
1: But the cost isn't even the biggest problem with antimatter propulsion technology. This kind of engine, as well as solar sails and nuclear rockets, are all strictly hypothetical. Scientists have proposed these as solutions to the rocket fuel speed barrier, but to date, nobody has successfully built a spacecraft that's powered by anything other than rocket fuel.
0: Which means that, for the foreseeable future, Any manned missions to Mars will have to take roughly nine months. That's nine months of exposure to cosmic radiation and microgravity, not to mention isolation and boredom. It's almost enough to make a person snap.
1: Up next, the physical and mental dangers of long-term space travel.
0: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. Throughout the early 21st century, numerous space agencies promised to put humans on Mars, possibly as early as 2024. But the trip would be a lengthy one, at least nine months, unless researchers can develop a new kind of high-speed, low-weight propulsion.
1: And those nine months pose a lot of danger to the passengers on board. We covered the health risks associated with space travel more in-depth in Episode Four physical and mental health hazards in space. But this week, we're going to discuss hypothetical dangers that might come from even
0: longer deep space journeys. The biggest risk is cosmic radiation. Researchers aren't sure where it comes from, but they theorize that it's produced when stars go supernova. In their death throes, the stars' atoms rip apart with the force of a nuclear reaction. Then they fling supercharged protons, neutrons, and electrons through space.
1: When that cosmic radiation reaches the Earth, our atmosphere and magnetic poles absorb roughly 99.9% of it. But if astronauts were to go into space without the planet's protection, they'd receive the equivalent of over one full-body CT scan per week.
0: High doses of cosmic radiation increase a person's chances of developing cancer. They also weaken blood vessels and might cause heart disease. They can even cause irreparable brain damage.
1: And unlike solar radiation, cosmic radiation cannot be shielded against. In fact, some materials actually make it worse. That's because they can't stop cosmic rays, but they can slow them down just enough to break up the subatomic particles even further. Each time the particles split, they produce even more energy. It's like a mini-atomic bomb going off every time a cosmic particle hits a piece of metal, or even plastic.
0: Which means the passengers and crew of any Mars colonizing mission would be subject to super potent radiation bombardments for nine months. Pat Troutman, NASA's Human Exploration Strategic Analyst Lead, assured the public that, we have techniques to deal with radiation. As for what those techniques are and whether they're effective, NASA has stayed mum. Seems that aspiring astronauts will just have to blindly trust that the agency has their best interests at heart, in spite of all the past evidence to the contrary.
1: And those who survive the radiation exposure still run the risk of communicable disease. Spacecraft with their cramped living quarters and recycled air are a breeding ground for infection.
0: On top of that, microgravity does weird things to bacteria. While some bacteria die when they leave the Earth's atmosphere, others become even more powerful and potent. Researchers aren't entirely sure why, but they think it's because of how inhospitable microgravity can be. Bacteria are experts at mutating and adapting to survive. And the most dangerous environments, like outer space, trigger the most dramatic kinds of evolution.
1: In 2006, NASA collaborated with microbiologist Cheryl Nickerson to study microgravity's effect on bacterial mutations. For 11 days, the crew of the Atlantis flew with a salmonella culture.
0: As soon as the shuttle touched down, Nickerson retrieved her culture and used it to infect hundreds of mice. Some were given a lethal dose, while others were injected with a small amount they should have been able to fight off. Then, she waited.
1: Usually, severe untreated salmonella is fatal after seven days. But Nickerson's infected mice died after only two days.
0: Even the mice who'd received smaller doses died. Space had made the Salmonella bacteria super potent.
1: This is especially worrisome because passengers on an interplanetary ship wouldn't have easy access to medical treatment. The doctors and supply kits wouldn't be as well-equipped as a standard Earth-based clinic or hospital.
0: And according to an independent review by the Science and Technology Policy Institute, proposed NASA missions to Mars have yet to account for onboard physicians. The ship's passengers would be responsible for self-diagnosing and administering their own treatments.
1: In short, conditions that would be manageable on Earth could prove fatal in space.
0: This speaks to one of the larger issues with the lengthy travel time. Not only are passengers cut off from doctors, they're cut off from everyone on Earth. They might be able to arrange phone calls or video chats with loved ones, but the further they get from our planet, the greater the lag would become. By the time they reach Mars orbit, passengers would need to wait 20 minutes for their loved ones to receive their messages and another 20 minutes for the reply
1: which means their social life largely depends on their fellow passengers aboard the ship. Our listeners may now have a taste of what that feels like while social distancing through the COVID-19 pandemic, but a Mars journey would be much worse.
0: For one thing, passengers on those trips won't have the option of stepping outside for a walk or to pick up groceries.
1: If they have windows, they won't offer much of a view. From Mars, the Sun appears only two-thirds the size as it does on Earth. And if the rocket faces the wrong direction, passengers will spend the entire trip staring at an endless black void.
0: The Sun wouldn't be the only celestial body that's out of sight. For large chunks of the trip, passengers on the ship wouldn't be able to see their home planet. This could trigger a phenomenon known as Earth-out-of-view phenomenon.
1: When you live on the Earth's surface, you take its culture and environment for granted. But psychologists hypothesize that travelers who can't physically see the planet will feel disconnected from humanity. They may become withdrawn or anxious. They might hallucinate or sink into depression with suicidal ideation. They would lack the motivation to do their chores or interact with other
0: passengers. And it's not good to sit around all day with nothing to do not only from a physical perspective, but mentally as well. Extended periods of boredom might exacerbate the effects of of Earth-out-of-view syndrome.
1: We've already seen this play out in simulations. From 2010 to 2012, the European Space Agency's Mars 500 program kept six male volunteers in isolation for 520 days. The trial was supposed to gauge how they adapted to conditions like those on a manned rocket to Mars.
0: Two-thirds of the volunteers developed psychological issues or sleep disturbances during the mission. In fact, the crew only seemed to maintain a healthy routine for the first three months of the program. Afterward, the volunteers on average spent more time in bed but didn't sleep well. One visibly suffered the effects of sleep deprivation and made routine mistakes that could be disastrous on a real space mission.
1: Sadly, NASA, SpaceX, and other private agencies haven't reported whether they've found a way to keep morale up on these journeys. They also haven't slowed down their development timelines. It makes one wonder whether the crew's mental well-being is less of a priority to these programs than staying on schedule.
0: Even if only one person on board suffers from poor mental health, everyone else will have to deal with the low morale. Spacecrafts don't offer much privacy.
1: For example, NASA has proposed the dimensions for a colony ship to Mars. Room for storage, equipment, and fuel is accounted for, so only 883 cubic feet per astronaut would be left for occupants to eat, sleep, work, and relax in. That's the equivalent of living in an RV. And NASA intends to have four people share it.
0: With such suboptimal conditions, squabbling is inevitable. NASA has run simulations in which volunteers go into extended periods of isolation with strangers. Meanwhile, researchers track the group's behaviors and moods. The findings have never been promising.
1: According to psychologist Kim Binstead, the most functional teams were made up of like-minded people, authoritative leaders paired with authoritarian subordinates, or a collective working together without a clear hierarchy. At the end of the day, there was no one ideal way to structure the group, just so long as everyone had a similar working style.
0: But no matter how like-minded they were, Each group fell apart due to fighting and resentment after about six months. That time period seems to be a hard upper limit on peaceful coexistence with any isolated social circle. Arctic researchers and submarine crews intentionally keep their missions shorter than six months. They know that at that point, social cohesion starts to fracture
1: which is a big problem when any Martian mission will be 50% longer than that six-month breaking point. And once they land, the passengers will still be stuck together as colonists. Or, if it's just a quick visit, they'll end up spending another nine months on the return trip. There's simply no way to shorten the trip or mix up the group. All that space agencies could do is try to mitigate interpersonal conflict from a
0: distance. To better identify the stressors of a Mars mission, NASA launched the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or HI-SEAS, in the spring of 2013. The program ran several simulations in which six ordinary volunteers, many with no formal astronaut or survival training, lived in complete isolation with their team. These missions lasted anywhere between four months to a year.
1: They stayed in a contained habitation unit on Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano. The desolate terrain is dotted with ruddy, igneous
0: rocks. It looks a lot like the Martian surface. In fact, every part of the high seas experience was meant to emulate life on Mars. The habitation had solar panels to generate all its electricity, and residents were expected to ration their water and power usage when necessary.
1: If anyone needed to leave the unit, they had to wear a full spacesuit. And before they could set foot outside, they had to spend five minutes in the habitation's atrium, simulating the five minutes a real pressure chamber would need on Mars.
0: The residents had limited contact with their friends and family members. Phone calls and video chats had a built in 20 minute delay, just as they would on the Red Planet. And if someone had to leave the habitation, say, for a medical emergency, the remaining participants acted as though their companion had died.
1: Gene, who we discussed in the teaser, isn't the only person who's needed to abruptly depart high seas. In 2018, the sixth high seas mission met with disaster, only a few days after it began. The troubles appeared on February 19th, when the unit's power went out, After a few cloudy days, the habitation had switched from using solar energy to a gas generator. Eventually, it ran out of fuel.
0: Someone needed to go outside and connect the secondary propane generator, and science communicator Lisa Stojanovsky quickly agreed to the chore.
1: So far as she knew, the repair went off without a hitch. When she returned to the habitation unit and removed her spacesuit, the lights were on and everything seemed to be back to normal. Well, almost everything.
0: Stojinovsky's crewmate, whom we'll call Gene, was pale and shivering. Apparently, Gene had been holding live wires in his hands at the same time Stojinovsky rebooted the power. He'd been electrocuted.
1: It was immediately obvious to Stojanovsky that they needed to call 911. But her crew commander, Suk Han, reportedly wanted to put it to a vote first. Emergency workers would break containment and undermine the integrity of the experiment.
0: But Stojanovsky felt the situation was more black and white. Jean was in danger. That should have superseded any other concerns. Han and the
1: crew ultimately agreed, but only to ask for advice. After all, in a real Martian emergency, the colonists would only be able to consult with
0: mission control. Still, Stojinovsky wasn't satisfied. She went behind Han's back and called off-site high-seas officials to report what had happened. With their encouragement, the crew finally called an ambulance.
1: Jean spent a few hours in the hospital before being discharged, but he couldn't return to the High Seas six habitation. The team had to proceed as though Jean had died on Mars.
0: But Stojinovsky wasn't content to just grieve and move on. The whole emergency and the team's reaction to it had left a sour taste in her mouth. And a few days later, she voluntarily left the habitation. With two crew members gone, The team didn't have enough participants for the simulation, and NASA shut down High seas 6 shortly thereafter.
1: Although the session ended early, NASA still gained a wealth of information. After all, the entire point of these simulations was to study group dynamics.
0: Ultimately, they concluded that Stojinovsky just hadn't been a good fit with the rest of the crew. They said her safety concerns stemmed from her inability to gel with the command structure.
1: As Brian Shiro, a geophysicist who collaborated with the high seas program, explained, there was this one person who was not as comfortable in the field. When the incident happened that ultimately led to the cancellation of the mission, that's the person who quit and it was not a surprise to any of us because we'd said, yeah, you know, she was a little more timid out there.
0: A pretty convenient conclusion when all is said and done. By attributing the failed mission to Stojinovsky, NASA sidestepped their own responsibility for the conditions that led to Gene's accident.
1: But even if the agency was totally blameless, Stojanovsky's defection was concerning. If they sent incompatible crew members to Mars, they'd still have to deal with high-stakes interpersonal conflict at a time when nobody can just quit.
0: That tension would last a lot longer than nine months. Sure, the Red Planet would be a welcome sight after the long journey through space. Perhaps the excitement of Touchdown would soften tensions between crew members.
1: But before anyone could step off the rocket and stretch their legs, they'd need to actually land the ship. And that difficult and potentially deadly maneuver is a lot trickier than you might think. If anything goes wrong, everyone could die.
0: Up next, the challenges of landing and living on Mars. Now back to the story.
1: Groups like NASA, SpaceX, and Mars One have committed to colonizing Mars within the next decade or two. But such efforts would pose immense challenges. The journey from Earth would take nine months, during which colonists would face superbacteria, radiation barrages, and heightened irritability.
0: And the long-awaited arrival on Mars would only pose more difficulties, the first of which is touchdown. This maneuver is far more complicated than it might sound.
1: A big part of the problem stems from the fact that Mars has such a thin atmosphere. On paper, that sounds great. Less friction should mean less chance that a shuttle will burn up on entry.
0: But that also means the air doesn't slow the spacecraft down as much. In fact, a descending vessel only has seven minutes to bring itself to a manageable speed and deploy its landing gear. NASA has dubbed it the Seven Minutes of Terror.
1: Since 1964, they've sent at least 18 probes and unmanned robots to Mars. Two-thirds of them crashed upon landing.
0: Failures were common from the very first Martian explorations. In November 1971, the Soviet lander Mars 2 was supposed to be the first probe to ever land on the Red Planet. Instead, it parachuted into a dust storm and became the first man-made object to ever crash into Mars.
1: Having launched only nine days after its twin, the Mars 3 successfully landed on the red planet one month later, only to stop signaling 20 seconds into its mission. Apparently, the descent had irreparably damaged it.
0: Things haven't gotten much better in the half-century since. On October 19, 2016, the European Space Agency's Schiaparelli lander descended through the Martian atmosphere. Less than 60 seconds before it was supposed to touch down, the lander abruptly stopped broadcasting. Its thrusters didn't slow it down enough, and it smashed into the Martian soil.
1: Which doesn't speak too well of our ability to put colonists on Mars. On the one hand, Each time a probe or lander crashes, it provides engineers with valuable information to prevent future collisions. But in practice, we're still regularly wrecking shuttles. So any passenger flying to Mars is taking a big gamble, and the deck is stacked against them.
0: A landing craft must fire its thrusters, pushing itself away from the planet and generating friction to slow down. It would also deploy a parachute, which is less effective than on Earth due to Mars' thin atmosphere. Still, it helps buy the craft more time before it hits the ground.
1: And the rockets and the parachute may not be enough. In fact, a lot of Martian landers don't gracefully land at all. They deploy giant airbags and then bounce across the
0: ground like a beach ball dribbling to a stop. For the purposes of argument, let's say a group of colonists managed to land on Mars. The first step after touchdown would be to build some kind of shelter to live in.
1: That's easier said than done. Obviously, the structure would need to be airtight. But the biggest problem with the Martian atmosphere isn't the low oxygen. It's the low air pressure. In fact, Mars's air is only a hundredth as dense as Earth's.
0: Let's imagine you're really good at holding your breath, so breathing isn't a concern. You decide to step out of your habitation and go for a walk on the Martian landscape.
1: Bad idea. To equalize the pressure between the outside air and the inside of your body, the oxygen in your bloodstream expands and bubbles. Even though the climate is frigid, with lows around negative 285 degrees Fahrenheit, Your blood boils. In a matter of seconds, you drop dead.
0: Which means humans on Mars can never go outside without pressure suits. At least, not without changing Mars. Some engineers have argued it may someday be possible to transform Mars or change its environment and ecosystem to make it habitable.
1: Bruce Joukowsky of NASA's Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission and Assistant Professor of Planetary Science Christopher Edwards have laid out a plan for how terraforming Mars might work. And it's as far-fetched as it sounds.
0: First, colonists would need to melt Mars polar ice caps and break open chasms in the ground to release stored carbon dioxide. The process could thicken the atmosphere triggering a period of global warming.
1: However, this would only raise Mars's overall average temperature by almost 18 degrees Fahrenheit. To make the planet habitable, settlers would need to release 50 times more carbon dioxide than exists on Mars.
0: In theory, plants could aid this process by converting that carbon dioxide into oxygen. That's how things worked on Earth. Three billion years ago, our atmosphere had scant oxygen. The evolution of plants created the breathable mixture we have now.
1: But it's not as simple as dropping a few seeds in the soil. Mars has naturally low levels of nitrogen, a necessity for plants. Instead, the dirt contains poisonous compounds that would need to be removed before planting edible vegetation. Crops would also require artificial light due to the minimal sunlight that reaches the Martian surface.
0: On top of that, Planetary ecosystems and atmospheres are incredibly complicated. It's virtually impossible to predict exactly how various factors could work together. Just look at the scientists scrambling to model climate change here on Earth. Then think how much more we'd need to understand to control those processes on an alien planet.
1: Even if we could figure out how to thicken the Martian atmosphere and pump oxygen into the air, the planet would still be deadly to settlers. Earlier, we mentioned that Earth's magnetic poles and atmosphere absorb almost all of the cosmic radiation that bombards the planet. But Mars doesn't have a protective magnetic field. So even if it had a totally Earth-like atmosphere, the air would still be saturated with cancer-causing radiation.
0: In short, the first Martian colonists will find life to be challenging bleak, and dangerous on a new planet. It's reasonable to assume some will want to give up and come home. Which may be impossible. It takes a
1: lot of thrust and power to leave Earth's atmosphere, so colonist ships would need to be as light as possible. With their passengers, their equipment, and the gear to establish a colony, there's not much space left to carry the thrusters, boosters,
0: and fuel necessary for a return. Which means that Martian colonists will probably need to wait a minimum of two years for another vessel to arrive that's equipped to take them back home.
1: If we colonize other worlds, the wait time will be even longer.
0: It's hard to say with any certainty where we might go after Mars. Venus seems like a candidate since it's closer to Earth than Mars. But our neighbor is horribly inhospitable. With a toxic atmosphere and regular sulfuric rainstorms. Venus's high temperatures can melt lead, so good luck building a shelter or a workable spacesuit.
1: Actually, the most Earth like destination in our solar system might not be a planet at all. Titan a moon of Saturn with beneficial natural gases, air density with high wind power potential, and magnetic poles that could protect colonists from cosmic radiation. Granted, long-term settlers would need to solve the problem of frigid temperatures and a lack of atmospheric oxygen. But compared to the conditions on Mars and Venus, these seem like minor problems.
0: Optimistic scientists have proposed colonies on moons like Europa or Enceladus, or even Ceres, a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt. But all of these celestial bodies would need to be terraformed with technologies that don't currently exist. And then there's the question of how we'd get there, since they're all even further away than Mars. If
1: we can solve those problems, we may one day seek to leave our solar system. If so, the nearest star to our own is Proxima Centauri in the Alpha Centauri system. That's about 4.22 light-years from Earth.
0: Some of our fastest ships can travel at speeds near 165,000 miles per hour, which means it would take them over 17,000 years to reach the star system. Since that's far longer than any person's lifetime, Colonial vessels would probably be generation ships.
1: Meaning you could take off today and your great-great-great-times-infinity grandchildren would land on one of Proxima Centauri's planets. Hopefully your descendants won't mind your decision to condemn them to a life in space.
0: For one, their freedoms will be severely restricted. Reproduction would likely be regulated to avoid under or over population people would be encouraged to pursue practical jobs like medicine or engineering, as generation ships won't have much call for the arts or theology or taxi driving.
1: Ethicist and philosopher Neil Levy noted that the quality of life on such a vessel may be better than on Earth in terms of access to medicine, food, and stability. But the costs in terms of personal freedom are enough to give serious pause.
0: Even with all the drawbacks, it's possible humanity will launch generational ships as soon as they figure out the technology. But in the meantime, it seems our first deep space colonization attempt will likely be to Mars within the next decade.
1: After all, it's in our genes to explore. It's what drove some of our ancestors to leave Africa and become Earth's dominant species, It's what inspired Magellan to circumnavigate the globe in the 1500s and Yuri Gagarin to orbit it four and a half centuries later.
0: Our will to explore is what put the first man on the moon, and one day it will put the first person on Mars. The question then is when and what sacrifices we will make, both for ourselves and for future generations, in order to get there.
1: Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll wrap up our discussion of space travel by exploring militarization, weaponization, and the Space Force.
0: You can find all of Parcast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
0: The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Angela Jorgensen with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.